All right, thank you guys. Good seeing you this morning. If you're a guest, we're especially glad that you're here to be a part of our worship experience this morning. And uh, whether in person or online, we hope that you would take the time to uh, just uh, message us to write FL Respond uh, and send that to the number 833-571-3475. And we'd love to be able to get in touch with you and, and talk with you about whatever decisions it is that the Lord is maybe laying on your heart, whether it's to become a follower of Christ or as a follower of Christ, become a part of this uh, church family and joining in uh, this great mission that God has uh, entrusted to us to be a part of. I want us to open our Bibles this morning to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. We <clears throat> just finished up a series, <clears throat> verse by verse, through the book of Romans that uh, we had spent nearly a, a year in. And what, we were go- what we're going to do after uh, spring break so we're going to come back and begin a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of James. And as theologically rich as uh, Romans might be, uh, James is uh, practically rich in nature. It's really kind of a manual for Christian living, and so we'll look forward to that in, in the next couple of uh, weeks beginning that series. But uh, this morning, what I want us to do is look at these first eight verses in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20, and consider the question, does Jesus being Messiah matter? Does it really matter that Jesus is the Messiah? Does it matter for for you? Uh, Well-known Jewish theologian Martin Buber One of his favorite stories is about the Jewish rabbi in Jerusalem who, upon hearing the news that the Messiah had come, said that he went to the window, looked out, and then turned around and pronounced that nothing to me has really changed. Now, it's an accurate portrayal that an understanding and anticipation that when the Messiah comes, things will be different, that things will change, that there will be transformation. We see that same kind of expectation in our verses this morning. I want to to read these in their entirety, and I want you to listen to this exchange very closely and the implications of it that we'll come to, but this exchange between the religious leaders in Jesus' day and Jesus. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him, and they declared, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? But he replied to them, I will also ask you a question, and you will tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They discussed among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men... All the people will stone us to death since they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither am I telling you by what authority I do these things. Now the religious authorities in Jesus' day, these that are mentioned here, the chief priests, the scribes, and and the elders, I hope you recognize they really have no interest whatsoever in this question of of authority. The very real issue, what we see is that the real issue is really one of 
messiahship. And so the counter question that Jesus poses, because he recognizes that they're not really interested in, in authority, Jesus poses this, this counter question uh, based upon the life and the ministry and the baptism of, of John the Baptist. Because this is going to get to the very real heart of the issue, the messianic issue that is at stake. The implication is going to be, as Jesus has asked this question of the religious leaders, if you say that, that John's life, his ministry, his baptism, that John is a prophet, that, that what he did, his baptism, was really a foretelling of the baptism that is to come, if John really is a prophet from God and he is the forerunner, the one making pronouncement of the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, then the implication is, is that if you believe in John, if you affirm his life and his ministry and his baptism, then the natural jump, the natural step is, is to believe and to acknowledge that I am, in fact, the anointed one, the one to whom John pointed. If we go back in Luke's gospel a little bit further, go back to chapter 3, we can see the role of John defined here. It says, he came into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, as it is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain hill and every mountain and hill will be lowered. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And then you jump ahead to verse 15 and 16. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and, and, they, were, and they were thinking carefully in their hearts about John, whether he himself perhaps was the Christ, John responded to them all saying, as for me, I baptize you with water, but he is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the failure, Jesus' implication is, is that the failure to recognize me, the failure to recognize me as the anointed one, the chosen one, as the Messiah of God, is really a rejection altogether of the life and the ministry of, of John the Baptist. And if you have doubts about the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, well, listen, John the Baptist had his own doubts. He had his own doubts regarding Jesus and and the Messiah. You go back to Luke chapter 7. In verse 20, it says, when the men came to him, the, the disciples of John the Baptist, when they came to Jesus, when they came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the coming one or are we to look for another? Then verse 22, and he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. People who were blind received sight, people who limped walk, people with leprosy are cleansed, and people who were deaf hear. Dead people are raised up, and people who are poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus could have just said, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one. But what Jesus wanted to do, that would have been too easy for John to have, to, to have just rejected that statement because there were many others in that day and time uh, that were claiming to be the Messiah. 
So what Jesus did is he pointed to something that, 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 that John the Baptist would know. He pointed to something with which John the Baptist would be familiar. And that's quoting of scripture, the book of Isaiah. Listen, you tell John everything the prophets anticipated. Everything the prophet said would be true of, of the Messiah that would be recognized in him, in his life, in ministry. You tell him it's being fulfilled. Then notice as it continues on, go up to verse 24 of chapter 7. And when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and lived in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go to see? He's reminding them of the very reason they ever went down there to see John the Baptist in the first place. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, listen, why did you go see him in the first place? Did you go down there looking for another Herodian experience? Were you looking for, a, for another earthly king? No, that's not what motivated you. You already have that. You already have a wicked king, an evil king, a finely dressed king. You've, you've experienced what the world can provide for you. You went down there looking for something transcendent. You went looking for something of God. You went looking for something of eternal stature. You wanted something that transcended the human experience. And listen, you found it. And what you have deemed John as being a prophet of God because you have deemed him a prophet of God, then the next logical step is for you to believe in me as the Messiah. That's the veiled questioning that Jesus has set forth. This isn't about authority. This is about Messiahship. That if you really believe that I am the Messiah, there are very real implications for your life. The first implication that Jesus would have us to recognize is that, notice in verses 1 and 2 again, his Messiahship disrupts, it is disruptive, it disrupts present kingdoms. If you truly believe that Jesus is Messiah, his Messiahship, even 2,000 years ago, it is disruptive to present kingdoms. It says on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the, and the elders confronted him and they declared saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority? Now, I've already mentioned their, their, their questions don't, don't emerge. Listen, their questions don't emerge from some kind of, of spiritual thirst and hunger. Doesn't emerge from longing to know, to know the truth of, of God. What the questions emerge from, veiled in authority, issues of authority, it's really just a cover up for their own insecurities. 
their own fears. The fear that their own kingdom, that the, the stru- systems and structures that, that they have built for themselves, that somehow these things will be under threat. Now the priest, when it makes allusion here to the, to the chief priest, the chief priest being of the, tri- of, the, of the Levitical tribe, they have somewhat of a birthright to the affairs of, of the temple. But whenever you see mention in the Gospels, especially whenever you see mention of, of the scribes and, and the elders in Scripture, listen, these, these, these two offices, they have, no, they have no divine appointments in Israel's history, none whatsoever. These two offices emerge as a result of the unholy matrimony of the Roman government in what is supposed to be the affairs of God. In fact, the high priest in this day and time was appointed by the Roman governor. This unholy union between church and state, it was a corrupted system. And the high priest was, a, was, was appointed by, by none other than the Roman governor of this province. And if that's not bad enough, his, his vestments, his priestly garb, his priestly vestments, they, they were housed in, in the Antonia Fortress that was built by Herod, by Herod the Great in 19 B.C. So maybe you have an appreciation, knowing that kind of, that background, the corruption of of the system, you have this appreciation for why they felt under threat. Everything that gives us security, everything that gives us power, everything that gives us authority, everything that gives us wealth and prestige, all of that is under threat out of this one who has come as, as Messiah. I mean, you don't get much more disruptive Then the thing that Jesus said about about himself in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, where he makes the declaration that one greater than the temple is among you. The one greater than the temple, this this fixture, this edifice of of your spiritual security. Listen, one greater than the temple is here among you. Do you see why both the government and the Jews, the Jewish establishment, why both of them worked together to bring about the death of Jesus? It's because Messiahship, if it's valid, if we ascribe it to him, then it's disruptive to our kingdoms. You think, well, how does that apply? Oh, we've got our kingdoms. And we have our systems, we have our structures that, that we have built for ourselves. But if you really embrace Jesus as Lord, Master, Savior, if you acknowledge him as Messiah, all the systems, all the structures that we build for ourselves, all those things come under threat. Second thing, second implication that Jesus holds forth here in regard to Messiahship, not only does it disrupt present kingdoms, but his Messiahship elicits calculated reflection. Whenever you begin to contemplate whether or not Jesus is Messiah, whether you're going to believe that and acknowledge that by faith, well, in your mind, if not with others, in your mind at least, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to elicit some calculated reflection. It certainly did for the religious leaders. 
Notice in verse verse three, I'm sorry, verse three. But he replied to them, I will also ask you a question. I'm not going to answer you. I'm going to counter your question. I'll ask you a question and, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Verse five says, they discussed. Now, some of your translations may may use the word reasoned. They reasoned, they they discussed among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if you say from men, all the people will stone us to death since they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they're having a discussion among themselves. They are reasoning among themselves, reflecting, contemplating the implications of this. And it's not so much an ego issue that they want to be, that, that they don't want to answer wrong. Listen, they're, they're not concerned about the wrong answer. They're concerned that if I give the right answer, there are very real implications for that in my life. What it means for my life. Because if I, if I believe that he is the Messiah, then, then I'm going to recognize that as, as I begin to pursue the life of faith, as I begin to pursue a life that, that desires and seeks to be obedient to the teachings of, of Jesus, I'm going to recognize pretty quickly that my life is out of step with the rest of the world. That, that my, my biblical views, that they clash with the views of the world in which I, I find myself. So at this point, let's just be honest. Let's be honest. Most professing Christians in the West, U.S. mainly, most professing Christians in the West, I think that we could agree, is they they want a perfunctory religion. Most professing Christians in the West, they just want a perfunctory religion. They want an accommodating religion. I want everything the world has to offer me, but I want a religion that I can offer a token nod. I want the blessings, I just don't want the burdens. I want to reap the blessings of eternal life, but I don't want to embrace the responsibilities in this present life. I want to determine how I live. I want to determine what I do with my time and my energy and my resources. But I want enough religion to where it's going to maybe pull me down there on, on Easter and, and Christmas. And I'll even throw in a Sunday every now and then when, when there's no ball games or anything else going on. It's what most people want. It's a religion without a Messiah. But if he's, if he's Messiah, if he's the anointed one, if he is God incarnate, And there are very real implications. I mean, very real decisions have to be made as to what what my life is going to be about. In a previous church, we had a young lady, brilliant mind. She went to Baylor on a full academic scholarship, was 4-0 in her undergraduate work, uh, applied to, uh, went to Baylor Law, 
graduated number one, top of her class. She was recruited by, by every law firm between Washington, D.C. And, and Los Angeles, California. Every prestigious law firm wanted her. And she jumped into that arena. And what she said to me was that with the passing of the years, she said, I, I began to realize that I was losing touch with my foundation, my values, and my ethical moorings. That I was losing touch in my faith journey, I was losing touch with the very principles that, that defined me, had always defined me in my life. And here I was working 80 hours, 100 hours a week for this law firm. And he said, I, she said, I finally got to the point, I just walked away. I walked away. I chose principle over practice. I realized they weren't interested in truth. They were interested in winning. And I chose principle over practice. See, that's what a Messiah does. He is disruptive to your present kingdom, and he will always elicit calculated reflection in your life. There's a final implication of Jesus as Messiah, if he really matters. His Messiahship demands decisiveness. Jesus is Messiah. It demands decisiveness in our life. And so they answered, verse 7, and so they answered that they did not know where it came from, the baptism of John, whether it was from God or men. They did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither am I telling you by what authority I do these things. In other words, Jesus is saying your neutrality is unacceptable. Your neutrality is unacceptable. Your ignorance is unacceptable. I mean, what God has done, what God is doing, how God has labored to reveal himself and make himself known to humankind. It has brought each one of us to a place where we cannot declare neutrality nor ignorance. In fact, in, back in Luke 3, again in verse 6, the prophet says, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. God allows us to see his unfolding redemptive, uh, his un, God allows us to see his unfolding redemptive purposes. Do you know it's really what the Bible is about? It's just about the unfolding of the redemptive purposes of God. You go back to Genesis 1-1, it's God revealing himself and making himself known in the, create, in the act of creation. I mean, it's, uh, Genesis 1-1 is nothing more than, than God being the agent in creation. Creation creates. Creation creates. It's not meant to answer all of our Western questions about, about the act of creation. All, all Genesis 1-1 declares is that God is the agent acting in creation. God making himself known, this desire to have a relationship with his created order. Well, it was insufficient. 
And so God called out a people, Israel, to be, to be his witnesses, to bear testimony of his presence in the world. They turned exclusive. They, they became an, an inclusive, questered group instead of a, a group that reached out to others. And so it was an in, insufficient modeling of, of who God is. God sent us prophets to proclaim his word. All they did was stone the prophets. And it came to a point when the fullness of time, this God who had revealed himself in various and sundry ways, according to the writer of Hebrews, revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of this has been about God revealing himself, bringing us to a place of decisiveness. Of who am I going to be? What kind of life am I going to pursue in life? Who he is, what he is. The prophets have said, as we saw in Luke 3, it's there for all to see. Those who have eyes to see, those who want to see, they can see. But you can never be indifferent. To understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done brings you literally to a crossroad. You can't declare ignorance, you can't declare neutrality. You've got to make a choice, a determination. As someone who wasn't raised in church, even tried being an atheist for a while, as a 21-year-old struggling young man trying to figure out what life is about, I arrived at a crossroad. I couldn't get my mind, my finite human mind around the concept of an infinite God. I would try to let my mind wander back to in the beginning, thinking about hundreds of millions of years ago. My mind couldn't comprehend it. But you know what I had to deal with? A point in history 2,000 years ago, which in time is really recent history, 2,000 years ago. What am I going to do about this man, Jesus? I mean, it's not just, he's not just a, a man mentioned in Scripture. There's at least 13 extra biblical sources, that is, sources outside of Scripture, that talk about the man, Jesus, who lived, who was crucified. And these are Jewish and Roman historians that, that lived in that period that wrote about this man, Jesus. Listen, legitimate secular historical sc scholars. Historians today don't even toy with this idea of a mythical kind of Jesus because the, 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 the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus, the man, existed, that he was crucified. And so when I arrived at that crossroad as a 21-year-old, I reflected and I realized I was at a point of decisiveness in my life. I've either got to embrace that Jesus is who he says he is, believe that and affirm that and pursue that, or walk away from it altogether. But I had this foreboding, foreboding sense as a 21-year-old man standing there at the crossroad that whatever decision I made Whatever decision I'm going to make regarding Jesus, this is going to determine my eternal destiny. My eternal destiny 
is at stake in this very moment, not later. I know my personality. I'm all or nothing. And I knew that if I made a decision right now, I'm just going to reject this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I know I'm going to jump in both feet. I'm going the other way. I'm all or nothing. But for me, the evidence was overwhelming that Jesus is who he says he is. And so I pushed in all the chips. I'm all in. It's a moment of decisiveness that cannot be avoided. And see, once, you, once you've decided, once you've acknowledged that he's the Messiah, that he truly is the Messiah, once you acknowledge that, and at some point you will, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to do it one way or another, either in celebration or lament. But it's going to be acknowledged by everyone at some point. And once the messiahship issue is resolved, the authority issue takes care of itself. You see, his entire life in ministry, Jesus was proving out his authority. He proved his authority, showed his authority over Scripture. What did they say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He's not like our Pharisees. He's not like our other teachers. He teaches with, with authority. He showed his authority over the temple, over institutional religion. Showed his authority over that. One greater than the temple is here among you. He showed his authority over sin to prove to you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. Take up your pallet and walk. He showed he has authority over death. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Lazarus, come forth. He showed his authority over over nature, to the storms, be still. Showed his authority over the demons, casting them out of the gathering demoniac and into the herd of, of swine. He showed his authority over the Sabbath. He's proven over and over and over again that he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one. It's been reflected in his authority over all things. The only question that remains is does he have authority over you? Does he have authority over your life? Because if he doesn't, that he is the Messiah doesn't matter at all. But if he is, then he has authority over your life. Let's pray together. Father, you have revealed yourself and made yourself known to us. We need not wonder and speculate as to who Jesus is, but through his life and ministry, he has fulfilled every prophecy ever foretold. He has manifested your love, your grace, and your mercy. He has shown authority over all things. And so, Father, our prayer is that he might truly have authority over each and every one of us.
that we might acknowledge that because he is Messiah, it matters. And it matters most of all for us, each one as the people of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.